The Lord is so good to bring us together again to worship him. And it's good to come together again around his word and to learn from him. And he's so kind to send his spirit day by day to teach us from his word. Let us pray. Our Father, may we not be conformed to this world, but instead we ask to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. Lord, grant us such a heart that we would fear you and always keep all your commandments, that it might be well with us and with our children forever. Father, bless us to be meek, that we may inherit the earth. Amen. So we'll be continuing ahead in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1. This week, you see there, the title is Unified Prayer, the Living Word, and Kingdom Wholeness. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I will read from verse 4 through to verse 26, which is the last verse in chapter 1. Please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, 
of these men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed too. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So brothers and sisters, let's remember that the book of Acts is a kingdom book. Jesus spent his last 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. They learned from him a lot about himself, the Messiah, and about his kingdom from the word. He taught them and he told them where they were going. Now they're on their way to Jerusalem to begin the process of God's kingdom coming from heaven to earth via his church's Holy Spirit-empowered faithfulness. Listen to Pastor Phil Kaiser's comments. In verses 1 through 3, we were presented with Christ's passion for the kingdom of God. And I say he was passionate about it because he spent his last 40 days teaching about the kingdom. In your last days with those that you love, you usually focus on those things that are most important. And if, if you are not passionate about the kingdom of God, your priorities are not where Christ's were. The book of Acts is a kingdom document. Unfortunately, so many people treat it as if it were anything but kingdom. These books claim that Christ postponed the kingdom. And what he was talking about in these verses is what would happen at the end of history. But think about it. Why would Jesus spend his precious last 40 days with his disciples talking about something that Sure, it might pique their curiosity, but which would be utterly irrelevant to what they would be doing if indeed the book of Acts is not about the kingdom. Instead, we would point out that this book starts with Christ talking about the kingdom and the last verse of the book speaks of Paul preaching the kingdom. And every chapter in between is about the kingdom of God. So we need to keep that in mind as we're going through the book of Acts. It's showing us Christ's kingdom program For bringing his kingdom into the earth. Today we'll look at verses 12 through 26. Verses 12 through 14 show us unified prayer in action. 15 through 20 show us the word of God being studied and preached. And then verses 21 through 26 with the application of the word of God by the work of the spirit of God and the movement of God. The 12 are made whole. And then some brief questions to know and to love and to obey God. So verses 12 through 14, unified prayer. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we've kind of looked at this before. Remember when we were in Luke, they had this, we looked at this journey, more detail, this, this walk. We looked at it with more detail then, even had a picture in the sermon notes. You can go back and look at that. So the 11 remaining apostles, no longer gazing up into heaven, 
returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Remember from Bethany, the house of misery. Walking westward down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, passing nearby the Garden of Gethsemane, down through the Kidron Valley. Recall recall from that December 19th sermon, the view across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives toward the Temple Mount. About a half, maybe three quarters of a mile walk. It's a Sabbath day's journey. Pastor Kaiser believes it's 2,000 cubits on the dot. This was 40 days after the Sunday, April Resurrection Day. So this is likely sometime at this point in May of AD 30, perhaps June. They obeyed Jesus by returning to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was unjustly convicted, mistreated by both Jews and Gentiles, and crucified. These 11 men are no longer running away from danger like they did that night in Gethsemane. They're going to the danger. Jesus told them to, and they did. So a little bit about the Sabbath day's journey. Bach says, all this reckoning suggests that Jewish roots suggests Jewish roots for this scene, but it does not mean the ascension took place on the Sabbath. By Luke's reckoning, it did not. It likely did not. This is because 40 days of appearances from resurrection to ascension with the resurrection taking place one day after the Jewish Sabbath means that a Jewish Sabbath is not in view. If you do the math, it can't be a Jewish Sabbath. In fact, when I did the math, I think it came out to be what we would call a Friday. So the day before the Jewish Sabbath. Check me on that. Reckoning the distance as a Sabbath's walk is merely a way to give a measurement, not to give us timing of the, of the event. It's not meant to say that it was on the Jewish Sabbath or, or the Christian Sabbath, but it was a, a, a distance. Next, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. So where is this upper room where they were staying? Uh, they had gone from the Mount of Olives, they had gone to Jerusalem, and they go to this upper room. Now, some commentaries point to the likelihood of a rented space in the city, perhaps the same space as mentioned in Luke's account of the Last Supper. Others point to one of the rooms in the temple, and I lean in that direction. It seems to make more sense that this was actually one of the rooms in the temple structure. Listen to Pastor Kaiser. Many reasons to believe that the upper room that the disciples were waiting in was an upper room on the south side of the temple complex. The Sabbath day's journey, which was 2,000 cubits, that's mentioned in verse 12, would have landed them right in the temple. And any Jew reading this book would have known that this was the first building you would come to and that it was a Sabbath day's journey from the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel had said that just as the Spirit had left the temple from the south side in Nebuchadnezzar's day and had been poured out on a remnant of Jewish believers who had formed the new Israel and a new temple among the nations in the same way, In the time of the new covenant, God would again pour out his spirit on a tiny remnant of Jewish believers in the temple and through them would leave the physical temple and form a new temple, a temple not made with literal stones, but with spiritual stones, human beings. So we'll look at those more closely as time goes on, especially in Acts chapter two. We're looking at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Ezekiel's prophecy of the water flowing from the throne, flowing out of the temple. And in Acts 2.46, another clue, after the great work of God on Pentecost Day, Luke writes. Now, have you ever read through chapter 2 looking for clues as to where this took place? It's kind of fun. At the very end, it says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So what this is showing us is that the scene of Pentecost Day with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred in the temple area. 
So it seems likely this upper room was either in the temple structure itself or at least very nearby. You see, they're continuing daily with one accord in the temple, which shows that that's where they had started. They're continuing where they were. Now, the 11 remaining disciples are actually named for us. I'm not going to read their names again, but it's important that we see that there are 11 named men here given to us. They were scattered on the night of Christ's arrest. They were absent from his crucifixion and burial. And then gradually they've been brought back together, starting at his resurrection, and then through the 40 days afterward. And finally, they're all present together at the ascension. And they are now one. They've now been brought back together. The scattering that took place is over. The resurrection, the teaching of the kingdom of God, the ascension has brought them all together. They're now one and they go together back to Jerusalem. They are ready to follow Christ's kingdom plan at this point. Fox says the 12 are reduced to 11 because of Judas's defection and suicide, which is described in verses 17 through 19. Jesus chose and assembled them as an identifiable group in Luke chapter 6 and also in Matthew 10 and Mark 3. Their formation was a symbolic way of saying Jesus was leading a reorganization of Israel. This was an indication that the new era had come and that the old Israel was not responding to God in a proper manner and needed restructuring under the direction and ministry of Jesus, whom God had sent. Now, there are others that are present with the 11, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here's this phrase again, the women. Bach says, present are women who likely include witnesses of the crucifixion and resurrection since they are otherwise undescribed. And so this is kind of a theme for Luke is he speaks of the women who were with him. So there's, there was always these women that were present. And it appears as though they came with them from Galilee, if you trace it back. That's beautiful. There was always these women there serving and loving and staying with him through his ministry. And now going with the church into its new age. Next, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now think of this. Here we have Jesus' mother and brothers together after the ascension with Jesus' 11 apostles and these other women, and they're all together, likely came from Galilee together. They've been together all this time. Think of the joy of Mary, the astonishment of his brothers. Think of this. Jesus' mother and brothers are now amongst those who hear the word of God and do it. Remember from Luke 8, then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And so there's a strong implication there that at that time, his mother and his brothers did not get it. They did not understand. Things have changed. Now the family has come to the real family, the eternal family, the one family that lasts forever, the family of God, which we are all a part of. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. It's, just, it's not just nice Christian lingo. We mean it because we have one God and Father and our elder brother Jesus has saved us and we are here as the family of God Sunday after Sunday. And that's what we do as we minister. We show forth the love of God our Father to his children. So what do they do when they're together as the family of God? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Just... Kind of let that float around in your mind because there's so much there. First of all, they all continued. Okay, so what did they do? They stayed together. They stayed together. It's not just a statement about what they did once they arrived in the upper room where they were staying. They continued together 
All they did was together waiting, praying in the word until the promise of the father came. You see, they needed the changes that God would bring forth during these 10 days between the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't waste any time. We have to ask ourselves, why didn't Jesus appoint Matthias after his resurrection? Why did he leave it to the 11? Jesus wanted to show them that he was still with them. And they needed to discover this in this 10-day time frame, even before the Holy Spirit was poured out. So they persevered together in this prayer and in the word <clears throat> for 10 days. They had word, they had fellowship, they had prayer while they were waiting, looking to God for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. The schedule, if you think about it, was built upon time together in the word and in prayer. That should mean something to us. That should impact how we schedule our lives. That should impact how we look to put our lives together to make our lives like the lives of these Christians who God used to change the earth, change, change the world. Do we have kingdom priorities? Do we have prayer and word and togetherness as our priority as the people of God so that we are going to be strengthened to be able to go out and do God's will? Bach says, as they patiently wait on God's timing, the disciples are praying and readying themselves for their task as a group. They're, they're being strengthened together for this great task that was going to come to them. Matthew Henry says they continued in prayer, spent much time in it, more than ordinary, prayed frequently, and were long in prayer. They never missed an hour of prayer. They resolved to persevere herein till the Holy Ghost came, according to the promise, to pray and not to faint. So, I don't know about you, but it's easy to forget about these 10 days. It's easy to think ascension, or a resurrection ascension, and uh, something happened in between. It's a very important time. Now, God accelerated the things that took place, right? We need to experience these same things. It probably won't be over 10 days, but all of the church of God, in order to be healthy and strong and to be ready for revival, needs to go through the things that they went through in 10 days. With one accord, that is so beautiful. The kingdom of God cannot go forward unless the people of God are of one accord. The kingdom instruction Jesus gave them has gripped them all down to their bones. There's nothing more important. They have the same thoughts. They have the same vision, the same purpose, the same love, the same faith, the same hope, the same word. They have got God before their eyes and his kingdom. Matthew Henry says this intimates that they were together in holy love and that there was no quarrel nor discord among them. And those who so keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace are best prepared to receive the comforts of the Holy Ghost. It also intimates their worthy concurrence in the supplications that were made. Though but one spoke, they all prayed. And if when two agree to ask, it shall be done for them much more when many agree in the same petition. And certainly this begins to shed light on our time of prayer together, doesn't it? During today's worship during our two Thursday evening times per month when we meet together to pray. And who knows, maybe God will call us to more corporate prayer. Paul calls the saints at Ephesus to this same kind of one accord life. He opens it up. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering. Bearing with one another in love, 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Bach says the gathered community is of one mind as it prays. Ten of the eleven New Testament occurrences of this term appear for us in the book of Acts. The word refers to a group acting as one, with one accord or with one mind, or met together continually or continually united or all together. Often it describes Jews or others acting in protest against something. In other cases, it describes the disciples who are in accord about something. As the examples concerning disciples show, it is a term that points to the fundamental unity within the church. Here the group is operating in obedience, waiting for the Spirit, and praying in preparation as they wait. The nascent church is showing some of its most fundamental characteristics. Gathered, seeking the Lord's will with one mind in prayer, and assembled to carry out God's mission. So what were they doing as they were together, continuing together? The main focus of this particular verse right here is that they were in prayer and supplication. So prayer is this general communication addressed to God. So anytime you address communication to God, your Father in heaven on Mount Zion, through Jesus Christ, His Son, by His Spirit, because you're cleansed by His blood, you're praying to God. That's a general statement. There's lots of different kinds of prayers. Okay, we've talked about that before. There's, there's praise, right? There's gratitude. There's imprecatory prayers when you ask God to destroy his enemies. There's lots of kinds of different prayers. There's, there's mourning and weeping before God, expressing your heart to him, laying your confusion out before him, fellowshipping with God, communing with God. And then there's also supplications. This is where you ask God for things. So the point of emphasis in their prayers at this time was to ask God for things. They were certainly worshiping him and adoring him and enjoying him. But the emphasis was on the supplications. It makes sense, doesn't it? They had a lot they were about to be involved in. So with one unified heart and mind, these men and women came together to communicate to God together, to seek God, to ask God to make entreat and to make entreaty of God. Now, we can be confident that the central focus of their prayers had been taught to them already by Jesus. And what did he taught them? His kingdom and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Unto preaching the remission of sins and repentance to the whole world, beginning at Jerusalem, and that they would be the witnesses. Then we're going to hire somebody else to do it. Then we're going to just write books about it and send it out. No, they were going to be the witnesses. So they knew what they were about to go into. And they knew they would have enemies just like Jesus did. So they would also be praying to God for protection from their enemies and the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. They knew they were about to walk into the fire. Matthew and he says, it was now a time of trouble and danger with the disciples of Christ. They were as sheep in the midst of wolves and is any afflicted, let him pray. This will silence cares and fears. They had new work before them, great work. And before they entered upon it, they were instant in prayer to God for his presence with them in it. Before they were first sent forth, Christ spent time in prayer for them. And now they spent time in prayer for themselves. 
They were waiting for the descent of the Spirit upon them and therefore abounded thus in prayer. The Spirit descended upon our Savior when He was praying. Those are in the best frame to receive spiritual blessings that are in a praying frame. Christ had promised now shortly to send the Holy Ghost. Now this promise was not to supersede prayer, but to quicken and encourage it. God will be inquired of for promised mercies. And the nearer the performance seems to be, the more earnest we should be in prayer for it. You can hear some say, why pray? He said the Spirit was going to come. But the opposite happened. The promise caused them to pray for the coming of the promise. They desired that which God said he would give and they longed for it and they prayed for it and they asked for it. God's promises never cause the faithful to be slothful in prayer. God's promises that he will do something leads us into praying for that which he said he would do. Do you see that? He said, well, he's going to save everybody. Why pray? No, 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 no. God has said he's going to do his work in the earth and that draws us into praying for that which he said is coming from heaven. It should encourage us. So they stayed together in Jerusalem in the temple area, praying together with one heart and one mind for 10 days, waiting upon Christ to keep his promise, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to empower them and to give them what they did not yet have. They needed these 10 days together with God in order to be ready for the spirit and the community leadership challenges that would follow after revival. Some things had to be in place first in order to be ready for that revival. Verses 15 through 20, the living word. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. It became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another Take his office. So Peter takes the lead. They've all learned from Jesus about himself as the Messiah. The Messiah was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die. He gave him the Emmaus Road walk. He did the same thing again when he got together with them later, teaching teaching them about himself throughout the scriptures. And he did the same thing about the kingdom for the 40 days that he was with them, teaching them about himself as the king and the nature of his kingdom and how it would come to the earth. He did this from the word of God, which for them at that point of time was what? It was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament scripture yet. Peter shows so many critical principles of Bible doctrine as he preaches this little brief section, this really important decision. First of all, he says, the scripture must be fulfilled. So this tells us that when God speaks, the word of God will come to pass. It's invincible. And scripture is spoken by the Holy Spirit. This means it's inerrant and it's infallible. It comes to us from heaven, came to us from heaven. 
Scripture is spoken by the Holy Spirit via the mouth of prophets like David. And this shows us the mystery of the office of prophet and the mystery of the divine written revelation process that God took his prophets through to put those words on pages that he has now preserved for us throughout history. So here's this phrase, in those days. So during the 10-day time frame, they're waiting. Peter concludes, and how we don't know, that it is time to choose someone to replace Judas. So there's a lot around this question. Why not before Jesus ascended? Why now before the Spirit is poured out? Why now? Well, the number of the names we're told are about 120. Church roles are implied here. The number of believers are important to Luke in his history. So that's one part of it. God works in Luke to show us the numerical expansion of the kingdom of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that over time. Numbers that can be counted, bigger numbers that can be counted, and then multiplying, greatly multiplying, and then throughout the New Testament, the whole world. Okay? So we see in the New Testament the claim that the gospel had been taken to the whole world. We'll talk about that over time. Now, 120 is not a lot of people to take the gospel of the kingdom of the whole world. So think mustard seed, think leaven, think new day of small beginnings, and just be faithful and trust God and do his work and watch him do his work. And that's what matters. Now, there is something about the significance of the 120 and of the 12. And this kind of plays into the idea of why we needed to have Judas replaced before the spirit came. Kaiser says he doesn't say 120 persons, but 120 names. Just like every other detail in this chapter, that detail is significant. 120 was the minimum number of males needed to constitute an official Jewish community complete with a ruling council. And they had to subscribe their names and thus the mention of names here. Ten men could form a synagogue, but we have enough men here to form 12 synagogues. And I believe Luke gives us hints that while the 12 were all from Galilee, that the 120 were men representing every tribe in the nation of Israel. So this really was the beginning of the new Israel. I'm not going to beat this to death, but turn quickly to Luke 22. And so these are the words of Christ at the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there needed to be 12 princes over these 12 newly formed tribes that would then receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter knew that the Bible had predicted a betrayer of the Messiah. And since Jesus had taught them all about himself in the Old Testament, it's likely that Jesus had taken them through these texts while he was with them during those 40 days numbered with us and obtained a part to this ministry. That's Judas. He filled that seat. Their number and their ministry was now diminished. They didn't have 12 anymore. So they're there. They sense their lack of wholeness. They know that something is missing. Yet Judas had earned an eternal place of infamy instead. And as we've read twice already, I won't read it again. Peter describes him in a ghastly fashion here. And I've already given the sermon on the life of Judas that really warns us against being traitors and the way that we can go down that path and not realize that we're even going down it. 
So I'd encourage you maybe go back, listen to that sermon about Judas because it ends here. Uh, it doesn't, I think the last scripture I quote about Judas is from here in Acts chapter one. Now then Peter brings forth the word of God in regard to Judas' broken lineage and the need to fill his empty office. So there's this warning about Judas, but that's not the focus of Peter's preaching. The focus is let's be whole. Let's be the people God calls us to be. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. This is Peter quoting Psalm 69 verse 25. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. And it's like you can imagine Jesus opening up the Old Testament scroll that he has and and showing Peter, yeah, this is the part about Judas. Uh, We don't know that happened, um, but it, it would make sense that Peter understood from Jesus what he needed to do. Could have figured it out on his own just by the Holy Spirit's leading. Let another take his office. That's Psalm 109 verse 8. Let his days be few and let another take his office. So there's two things. He's gone. He's finished. His lineage is over and he's gone to his place, which is hell. But his office had to be filled. The people of God persevering together in prayer, supplication and the word of God as they wait for God's promised Holy Spirit, obeying the word of God by replacing Judas. God is preparing them internally with unity, with prayer, with the word of God and with obedience to be ready for that which he was going to take them through as they did his will. Now the 12 are made whole through this process. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Bersabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So, with understanding of the Bible's invincibility and infallibility and divine inspiration, Peter brings forth the words teaching about Judas and the need to have another take his office. So he realized that's where they were. And Peter knew that the outward work of the kingdom of God would likely accelerate after Pentecost. So the time to reconstitute the 12 was then. They needed to be ready for the outpouring of the Spirit. Kaiser says, now with that as a background, I think you can understand why Peter was not out of line when he said that a replacement for Judas had to be made before Pentecost. They could not wait. Prophecy indicates that the Spirit would be poured out upon a new Israel under 12 new princes. And remember that we've already read in Luke 22 that Jesus basically calls the apostles princes there. If they're sitting on thrones, they are princes judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they have these qualifications that they know about the apostle. He has to be a man, had to have been with the apostles the whole time, all the time from the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us from the baptism of John until the ascension, and they had to be witnesses of the resurrection. So these were the criteria that were required of them. What do they see? Well, there's two men here like that. What do we do now? They prayed to God and they cast lots. They looked to God to choose his apostle. I want us to look at their prayer as they sought to live out God's word and find the man that God had chosen to be the replacement 
for Judas. You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. So they say, O Lord, they know Jesus chose his 12 to begin with, and they trust him to choose the replacement. Only the Lord knows the hearts of all. One of these men had been given the heart to be amongst the 12, and only God knew that. You see, we can only see the external requirements. They had their external requirements. They couldn't see the heart, neither can we. So we must pray for God to guide us with his divine wisdom. Henry says, when an apostle was to be chosen, he must be chosen by his heart and the temper and disposition of that. Yet Jesus, who knew all men's hearts for wise and holy ends, chose Judas to be one of the twelve. It is comfortable to us in our prayers for the welfare of the church and its ministers that the God to whom we pray knows the hearts of all men and has them not only under his eye, but in his hand and turns them which way soever he will can make them fit for his purpose if he do not find them so by giving them another spirit. And so they ask God. They know that God alone knows. He's the one that chooses his leaders. And they want him to show them through lots which of these two men he had chosen. See their confidence? They just cast lots and move on. Here's a perfect opportunity for a church split. Think about it. Persavas, Persavas, Matthias, Matthias. Right? They pray to God, put it in God's hands. They had God's word. They had faith. He was listening to them. They knew that they knew they were seeking his will. They trusted that he would answer. So they knew that casting lots was acceptable in this situation. Decision made, move ahead. Matthew Henry says, the doubt was determined by lot, which is an appeal to God and lawful to be used for determining matters not otherwise determinable, provided to be done in a solemn religious manner and with prayer, the prayer of faith. For the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposal thereof is of the Lord. It's from Proverbs 16, 33. Matthias was not ordained by the imposition of hands as presbyters were, for he was chosen by lot, which was the act of God. And therefore, as he must be baptized, so he must be ordained by the Holy Ghost, as they all were not many days after. Thus, the number of the apostles was made up. So, in the same way that Jesus chose his first 12, he chose Matthias. And you notice, not through the lot laying on of hands of the apostles, Uh, as if he was the next generation, but he was an original apostle chosen by God to be amongst the original 12. And we'll see when Paul comes in, it's the same kind of choosing. It's not a laying on of hands done by men. It is a placement in a position by God himself directly. So what can we, how can we be encouraged here today in our lives? Well, there's a couple of ideas I want to bring up for us to pray about and think about. The first thing that I see in this text that is really special for these people is their proximity to one another. It's easy to overlook. See the word together? That means proximity. They had a place they stayed and they were all together. And the reason that they were all together 
is because they had kingdom work to do that required that kind of togetherness. Okay, so do we in the church today adequately prioritize proximity to do the will of God? It is my belief that part of the reason the church is so weak today is because that most churches are made up of families and people who don't have this kind of practical proximity available to them. Let's pray about that. Amen. See what God might do. There was togetherness. You know, there are, there are churches that have proximity, but they don't have togetherness. They don't have unity. I could tell you a story. Okay. They're all there, but they're not together. Now, just because there's proximity doesn't mean there's unity and togetherness. So as we said before, we looked at it. What is it that leads to the unity that causes togetherness? What the Bible called all together in this particular section. What causes that? Well, we saw it. They're unified around the mission, the purpose that God has given to them. And that brings them together. That makes them of one accord. We read the text from Ephesians 4. So it's not just proximity. Okay? That's not all it is. Proximity cannot overcome disunity. Uh, Being pulled in multiple different directions. Not having the kingdom of God as our focus. But we can say on the other hand, it's likely that if we have the kingdom of God as our focus, proximity is not going to be as much of a barrier to our working together. If we're focused on the kingdom together and we have that same strong desire to be caught up in God's kingdom work that they had. Next, we see prayer. I've said it so many times. Uh, Prayer, if you will, is the demonstration of a community that is bound together by love for Christ and his kingdom. And they cry out to him together. This corporate prayer that they were involved in was the fruit of that. And so we see that this is building their unity building their togetherness, strengthening them and readying them and also changing them as they're communing with God. Well, what sprang up next in the text is the word of God. So the people come together. They're unified around the purpose that's been given to them by Christ already. They come together. They have the proximity. They have the desire because they're kingdom people. They pray and the word is central and they have a problem and they go to the word. And the word teaches them how to solve the problem and they obey. And in this particular situation for them, it was leadership. There's a lot of different problems. We'll see them go through in the book of Acts. We'll see another leadership issue in chapter six, which they solve. So leadership was an issue as the kingdom of God was growing. And it's an issue today. So we look to God's word. We come together in prayer. We study and learn his word together. And we cry out to him for solutions to the problems that we have. And he teaches us and he helps us and he changes us and we learn together and we grow together and we get the solutions that he has for us. And what this led to was it made them ready. It made them whole. They weren't in limbo anymore. They were established. They were a mustard seed. They were 11, but it wasn't 11 twelfths of a seed. It was a whole mustard seed. You see, they were ready. They had everything they needed in that little seed form to be ready to go. So God is doing that in his church today as well. Various churches and various states of readiness and incompletion and uh, lack of wholeness. And where are we 
as a church? What, what do we need to grow up in to be ready to have this kind of loving kingdom impact in the world as we are faithful to God day by day? You know, it would be too easy to say, oh, we expect this great giant revival if we do all these things. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But what we can expect is that each Christian community, whether it's a single church or a number of churches in a region, can grow up into this maturity to have this kind of gospel kingdom impact in their area over time to where we see the kingdom expanding. We see the enemies of God fleeing. We see the culture being transformed. We see conversions and we see the world being brought under the sway of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be a part of this. And the things that God shows us in the book of Acts helps us see our deficiencies, our strengths and our deficiencies. So may God bless us to learn these things together over time and ask him, what will this look like as he does by his grace, as he does this here at Foothills, here in the town of Edgefield or in Aiken, Clarks Hill, Greenwood, 96, over in Georgia? What is it gonna look like as God does this as we have this unity, this prayer, this word, and we grow up together in Christ, worshiping him, and we continue to receive his Holy Spirit's work in us day by day. We can look to the book of Acts as a great encouragement and to give us great hope for the future of the world that we live in right now. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice that your throne is established forever and ever. Lord Jesus Christ, at your right hand, your spirit poured out from Mount Zion upon us, your people. You've given us your word. You've granted us the place to come together, the joy of praying to you together, seeking you with all kinds of prayers, including supplications. The joy of hearing your word to us and being transformed and learning and growing and uh, seeing problems and having you bless us with uh, us being made more whole, uh, more able uh, to do your will. We do ask you, uh, Father, from heaven, that your kingdom would come from heaven to this earth and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that you would, in your great kindness, open our eyes to the places where we need to change and grow so that we could be more able to uh, not grieve or quench your spirit, uh, more able to receive uh, the steady flow and outpouring of your spirit's work uh, in our lives, in our families, uh, in this church, in our communities, uh, for your glory, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.